Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. And from IU School of Public Health Bloomington, addressing public health needs by preventing disease, promoting health, and improving quality of life across the state and around the world through research, teaching, and community engagement. Offering undergraduate and advanced degrees. publichealth.indiana.edu. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. Forty-five percent of people in Indiana live in a rural community, but more and more of the young people are leaving their rural home, hometowns for bigger opportunities. And as the older population begins to retire and the workforce in small towns diminishes and economic sustainability becomes a huge challenge. So today on Noon Edition, we're going to talk about these specific challenges facing small towns in Indiana and how, as a state, Indiana can help keep these communities viable. We have uh, three guests with us in the studio and one on the phone with us. Uh, Jacob Seip is here. He is the executive director of the Indiana Housing and Community Development Authority. Also, Carmen Lethig, who's real estate production manager at the Indiana Housing and Community Development Authority. Frank Nierwicki is with us. Frank's been with us before. He's former director of the Metropolitan Planning Organization of Bloomington and a former NDOT employee who focused on southern Indiana. Uh, He now teaches urban planning at IU's School of Public and Environmental Affairs. And joining us by phone is Sue Murray, the mayor of Greencastle, which was designated by the state as a stellar community in 2011. If you have questions or comments, you can join us on the program by calling us at 855-0811 in Bloomington or 877-285-9348. Outside the local area, you can also join a live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. And if you want, you can follow us on Twitter at noon edition. So thank you all for being here with us. But before we get to our guests, we have a a little um, tape. uh, Actually, I guess it's a digital recording that our producer Claire (laughs) McInerney uh, did. She talked with Purdue agriculture economist Brigitta Waldorf. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Uh, whose latest research defines what constitutes a rural community in Indiana and some of the problems these communities face. So we're going to hear a few minutes of their conversation. First off, will you start by explaining the research that you and Janet conducted regarding rural towns in Indiana? Well, the research that we are doing uh, deals broadly with uh, rural issues um, as they apply to Indiana. And my area deals mostly with uh, demographic issues. And when it comes to the demographic issues, then uh, what is important is what is the future population size and what is the future population composition with respect to all kinds of attributes, for example, age. What were some of the things you found in terms of demographics um, in these rural towns that you guys looked at and the data that you looked at? I think that we are trying to provide information on which counties are at risk of facing challenges in the future. Um, So basically what we see in terms of the population loss. And so what specifically would some issues be for a rural county community if they have a lot of their population leaving, never coming back, and eventually they'll you know, get old. Maybe one thing we could talk about is the workforce. I know that's something that, um, you know, was mentioned in your research. Overall, the population in rural counties is aging. And that is um, partly due to the fact that the young people are leaving rural Indiana. And um, what we see is that, uh, the, that the young people, of course, they want to go to places where they have opportunities. And very often in these rural counties, there are no opportunities. So sort of like from the other side, if employers, if if firm considers, okay, I want to locate somewhere in Indiana, they may not choose rural areas because there they don't find the workforce. 
So it's a, a vicious cycle, basically. And so can a rural community bounce back from that and attract people again and keep its young people in the area? Or is this kind of a losing fight, in your opinion? Oh, that is a difficult question. That is a really a difficult question. I think that um, probably what the rural counties need to do is they need to find a niche, some place where they are better than rural areas. That could be, for example, tourism, right? If you think about uh, the uh, central and southern Indiana, they have lots of places that are very, very attractive, and they could, for example, build on this attractiveness in terms of tourism. But it is, of course, which area that is, every county basically has to decide that for uh, themselves. Sometimes it might even be advantageous to sort of uh, combine or join forces with neighboring counties and become stronger by um, sharing um, services, for example, or yeah, offering something that goes over a wider area where counties are working together. All right. So uh, as she said, this is a very difficult question. So I'm going to turn to our, our three panelists. And Frank, I'm going to go to you first. Um, what kind of answer would you have to that difficult question? Is this a losing battle or can these, can rural communities uh, compete and survive? Rural communities uh, can compete, but they have to revitalize uh, themselves. They have to be able to look at uh, what their advantages are over other communities. Sometimes, like was, was mentioned in, in the interview, prior interview, was to work with other communities. There's going to be more regionalism, uh, possibly. Some communities may not make it. I mean, it, it just, it, it's going to be, we'll know in the next 10 to 20 years on this, but we've been changing for the last 30 years in Indiana. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a general shift, well, not a general, but a, certainly a shift away from an agrarian-based economy and uh, well, what what we've done basically is looked at uh, manufacturing. Uh, I'm from northeastern Indiana, originally Huntington, Indiana, uh, which I would consider as actually a rural farming area. My wife considered that a big town because she grew <laughs> up on a on a hog farm. But we had 17,000 people located between Fort Wayne, Indiana, and Marion, Indiana. So we had a number of people working in the factories in those two locations. I have a brother-in-law that lives up in Walkerton, Indiana, and he loves to farm, but he makes ends meet by being a CPA. So there's been a change in Indiana going away from manufacturing jobs that have put a lot of pressure on communities. Jacob and Carmen, from uh, your office's perspective, I mean, what's your answer to this? Well, um, I would think first that our rural communities are have an opportunity to continue to be successful. Um, and we see that across our state uh, as I travel and I get to visit uh, local leaders. Um, one of the things that I think our rural communities really have to uh, identify are their community assets. Um, and oftentimes, because they're living in those communities, they, they sometimes just take those for granted and they don't recognize the opportunities that are there with those community assets. And I think that was mentioned tourism was a good example where I think a lot of us may take that uh, for it. Uh, as just for granted that, you know, we have a nice waterfalls, I think, of uh, Cataract Lake and, and those, those waterfalls that are there. They think you have a great asset there, and they should be able to continue to build on those assets. The other piece I think is really important is that uh, they identify and bring together and engage their, their, their public uh, and their leaders, their young and, and the elderly and the families and individuals who are living there to, to be a part of a process that helps them define what that community is going to look like in the future. Um, and I, I think that's very important that our communities are, are engaging uh, and making sure that you're, you're wanting to build that community that's uh, for all ages. Mm-hmm. Carmen, your thoughts? Um, yeah, just I think I would build upon um, what has already been said. Um, I do get to work with a lot of great people in the rural communities every day through the work that I do. And um, I think a lot of it is them focusing on what they have as assets in their communities already and building on that and working with the um, 
partners in their area to be able to make uh, their communities, you know, the place that they vision it to be in a, in a better place than it already is. Mm-hmm. Now, Mayor Sue Murray is on the phone with us, um, Mayor of Greencastle. And Mayor Murray, in the uh, study defining rural rural Indiana, there's a map that I'm looking at now, and it, it looks at uh, your county as um, – a rural county, but I don't necessarily think of of Greencastle, uh, you know, as a as a rural community. So, you know, would would you? So, I guess you know, having said that, the the idea that uh, Jacob talked about for bringing people together to sort of decide what you are and what where you want to be. I mean, is that a process that you you undertake? It's a process that's gone on here in Greencastle for, golly, the last 30 years. We've had different visioning groups that have gotten together, both in 1980, 1990, and we just as recently as this year brought another group of folks. We did it in 2007, 2013. We had two different days of community summit meetings doing exactly what people have talked about, bringing a whole variety of folks together to talk about our strengths as a community, our potentials as a community, what kinds of things that we are interested in doing, what are our needs, and um, what are we really going to need to do to engage people in the life here in Greencastle. So, so give, I think it's exceptionally important to have those conversations. Well, give us a few ideas. So what do you, what do you, uh, what do you need to do in Greencastle, or what are you planning to do to, to engage people? Well, I think there are a few things I'd, I'd like to just back up and say. We mm-hmm. went through this process, obviously, in 2010. You mentioned we were one of the first two communities that were selected as a stellar community in the lieutenant governor's program to try and put together resources from three of her funding agencies, IHCDA and Office of Community and Rural Affairs and the Department of Transportation. And in that, the vision that we had created for ourselves at that time was to create the next best college town. So. That was a goal. That's something that we've been working diligently, not just on capital projects, but on trying to bring that sense of education being at the forefront for our community. The relationship with DePaul and the existence of DePaul University here in Greencastle makes us different. And most certainly the building of the Ivy Tech facility and that opening in 2009 at another component in terms of workforce development that I think makes us special. So we spend time looking at what our strengths are and where our deficits are and trying to fill in the pieces. One of them that was glaring to all of us was the lack of a recognized Main Street organization as we work diligently on our downtown. And that's come full circle now, and that now is indeed a functioning and thriving enterprise over the last 12 months. So Arts Council, um, what we can do to really enrich the arts in our community and build on what's already here. So there are individual projects that we continue to work on. The revitalization and the vibrancy of our downtown is one. Continuing economic development issues, only way that we seem to be able to raise our ability to bring money into the city to be able to take care of needs and be able to provide services is to work diligently to increase our AV. So we need to have people who are willing to invest in our community. We need to have a workforce that's ready to be employed by those folks. And we need to also play on, I think, when we talk regionalism, the assets that we have in terms of our central location in the state. Mm Well, a lot of our listeners are from rural communities and rural areas. So uh, if you're from a small town in Indiana or if you've left the small town and gone on to someplace for better opportunities, we'd certainly like to hear from you and uh, hear your experiences and why you made that decision. Give us a call at 855-0811 in Bloomington or 877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also join the live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. As you were having your conversations, I assume that you spoke with folks who um, <clears throat> live in Greencastle in the area and asked them what attracted them to the area. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you find out? We found out a few things. Some of the folks that came and obviously participated are folks whose families have lived in the area for generations. But other folks who have come have come for very specific reasons. They've come for a specific job, opportunity that brought them here. Mm -hmm. They've come because of quality of life issues. We talk a lot to our DePaul students because obviously we all 
know what the discussion has been about the brain drain, and most certainly your intro talked to that, spoke to that very well, that when people finish their education or they're ready to go out in the world, sometimes it's certainly much more opportune to be looking outside of the confines of the community that you've grown up in or you've been educated in. Where we found people turning around and coming back and really engaging, that same population, some of whom were born here, some of whom were educated here, once they have families, they're looking for this kind of environment as opposed to the larger urban area that might have attracted them early on. Uh, I know Indiana State has a program where they're um, offering incentives to uh, people who are going to enter medical school to keep them in the state of Indiana uh, after their graduation. Um, Is DePaul looking at any programs like that to keep their graduates in the area? They're not looking at any programs like that, but what they have instituted is a very aggressive and a very um, well-funded internship program for the summers. Mm. That allowed DePaul students to interview for internships at various businesses. And um, I had an intern last summer and expect to have one this summer here in the city that are able to see what it's like to be here when there aren't 2,400 students that you you live with on the campus. Yes, it changes your community, doesn't it? It certainly does. (laughs) We know a little something about that here. That is true. (laughs) Well, I want to turn to our panelists and and ask uh, Jacob Seip and Carmen Lethig and and Frank Nerwicki about the characteristics that you see of small towns, that rural communities that, that you think are really doing it right and the ones that you're kind of worried about i mean are there what what, what are the differences and characteristics of those communities you don't have to name names if no, you don't no, feel comfortable. no no <laughs> we don't want you to name names no just the ones who are doing well right yeah. <laughs> right right uh, Carmen? Um, I think I would say the ones that already have um, significant relationships built within the community. And I'm talking about um, public, private, nonprofit, um, and, um, you know, a municipality relationships. Everybody's sort of um, getting together and looking at the goals for the community and figuring out who can take a piece of all the work that needs to be done in order to get to that goal. Um, I think those are the kind of communities that we work with on a daily basis that I've been able to see some successful projects. Um, so are you saying having the city or town government and the county government all rowing in the same direction, or is there less government at that level? Even? <laughs> um, that is a sticky situation, uh, but <laughs> it does work sometimes. Um, I think if you have that relationship, it obviously helps you be more successful in any kind of project that you're working on or um, community development type of things. Um, I'm thinking more of you know, nonprofits in the area, um, volunteer-based community members um, working in partnership with private industries, mm-hmm. um, maybe, um, you know, in conjunction with the local government, the mayors, the city county councilors, things like that, that um, those are the kinds of relationships that I think are really important to build upon. Mm-hmm. Frank? Well, I think the one thing, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a certified planner, so I have to put this plug in, um, cities do planning either uh, actively or inactively. Um, they may choose not to do anything, which is a plan, I guess. Um, from a community standpoint, they have to have you know, some of the things that Carmen was talking about. They have to have a, a focus, and they need to have an action plan. They need to have a comprehensive plan. So there's a lot of planning that needs to be done. And obviously in planning, we talk about SWOT, S-W-O-T, strengths, weaknesses, and Opportunities. And yes. Threats. Yes. <laughs> and uh, so, from a standpoint of actually, each community does have their, their assets and, and uh, opportunities. But we could talk as much as we want to, and we could actually go to the community. At some point, if you're from the state or if you're from a university, you leave. And what is that community prepared and ready to do once you leave town? That's the biggest issue. Well, I. I'm going to turn to Jacob for this because I know you've been to a lot of the smaller communities, and I, I guess I'd like to know, you know, sort of how do you how do you define them? It doesn't seem like a one size fits all issue because you know I'm, I came from a small town that's a, you know, but it's a county seat town, and and it's it, you know it, it it was a big town compared to a lot of the communities in in the county where I grew up. So you know, we you, you could drive anywhere in Indiana, and you and eventually. You know, if you're on a small road, you'll run into some place that's got a gas station and maybe a, an antique store and not much else. So, uh, yeah. 
how do you work with the various sizes? Well, you know, I think you have to develop good policy that's flexible and that can work in various different types of communities. Um, one of the things we're working on right now is an elimination of blight program of abandoned homes. And this is going to be a statewide initiative. But we recognize the, um, there is a, there's a uh, big demand statewide with our abandoned homes. We have an issue. Um, and uh, so when you, we developed a policy uh, that we're going to be able to implement, you know, first you have to take into consideration the needs of Gary and, and Marion County. Um, but then you also have to be able to, f- to develop a policy that you can implement in Greencastle uh, or Ellettsville. Um, and and uh, so it, is, it can be a challenge, but I think the most important piece of that is to allow flexibility and allow communities to define what their outcomes are going to be and what they define as success. Uh, without trying to be too overhanded and trying to uh, tell them what is success. Uh, I think that was one of the nice things about the Stellar program that the mayor mentioned that she's been designated in. Um, we gave them a lot of flexibility in trying to determine, you know, what is this action plan going to look like? I think sometimes maybe Mayor Murray may could, uh, maybe talk a little bit about this. They, you know, they, they probably, she probably was a little frustrated because we didn't give a lot of guidance as to, you know, what does this action plan have to look like? What types of of, of, uh, of development that you need to have in your community, what types of partnerships that you have to have. Um, and, and each community is a little different. And when we talk about not-for-profits, uh, the communities have different levels of capacity with not-for-profit organizations and the private sector as well. Because uh, so, there has to be that private-public partnership. Um, and each, that looks different in different different communities. Um, and uh, you'll see different types of partnerships. You'll see partnerships with the community action agency. You may see a partnership with um, a local bank, the tourism, the chamber of commerce. Uh, so each community, and Mayor talked about Main Street. Main Street wasn't in Greencastle, and they just brought it in. Uh, so, again, I think that's a great opportunity that communities can see that are very different. But have to, So as a state, we have to, to – provide policy that is flexible. Uh, Mayor Murray, I want to get to you after the break, but I'm going to follow up with Jacob just a little bit here first. Uh, do you get, uh, you know, Hoosiers are, are sometimes notorious for thinking, well, you know, it's, uh, you know, we don't need the state coming in and telling us what to do or that we need improvement. I mean, do you get any pushback when you go into the, some of these smaller communities who say, you know, things are, things are going, they're going just fine. This is the way we like it. Well, with Stellar, you know, we just put out a call for request. And if you're interested, then you can come and, and you can talk and we can decide, um, uh, you know, what we're looking for, what our priorities are. And it fits um, Then I think certainly that those communities can, can be a part of Stellar, um, which we oftentimes have a large demand of communities who are interested in the program. Um, rarely do we have communities say, you know what, we, we don't um, want to be involved in that because I think um, – you know, we've tried to create that balance of creating policy that's not – that doesn't create red tape, but the red tape is there in a lot of cases because a lot of the funding is federal funding and the red tape is red tape and there's no way you can get around it. Um, so for us, we have to be careful that we're not imposing additional barriers to communities to maximize those resources. Mm-hmm. All right. We've hit, hit time for uh, taking a break. So we're talking about rural communities in Indiana today and how – Uh, The state and the rest of us can keep these towns economically and socially viable. If you live in one of Indiana's smaller communities, uh, what's your town doing to keep your residents there? If you want to give us a call, 855-0811 in Bloomington or toll-free 877-285-9348. You can also join the live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net. And IU School of Public Health Bloomington. Online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers south-central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiu.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each afternoon. 
It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIU.org news. Last time, I think. All right, we're back. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. We have uh, four guests with us today as we talk about uh, rural communities in Indiana and the Stellar Program, Stellar Community Program, and a lot of other issues involving the economic and social well-being of, of smaller communities. Jacob Seip is the executive director of the Indiana Housing and Community Development Authority. Carmen Lethig is the real estate production manager at uh, the Indiana Housing and Community Development Authority. Frank Nierwicki is with us. He's former director of the Metropolitan Planning Organization in Bloomington, former NDOT employee focusing on southern Indiana, and he now teaches urban planning at IU School of Public and Environmental Affairs. And joining us from the beautiful community of Greencastle is Greencastle's mayor, Sue Murray. Uh, Greencastle was designated by the state as a stellar community in 2011. If you want to join us on the program, please phone us at 855-0811 in Bloomington or 877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also join a live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. We want to go back to uh, Mayor Sue Murray and talk about uh, some of the issues we've been discussing beforehand and, and particularly about the Stellar Community uh, Program and, uh, you, know, how, how, you know, how important that's been for you and, um, you know, why you think it's a great thing for the city. A pretty easy question to answer. <laughs> I am a softball. <laughs> pretty I easy. Softball. Uh, those of us who are considered rural communities are not entitlement communities, so we have less than 50,000 in population. Anytime we're able to access some extra funding to do capital projects, we try and go after that. Because what has happened, obviously, as we all know, since we went into a world recession in 2008 and property tax caps were voted in in 2010, um, and we're talking now about other changes to the tax code in Indiana, they have a direct impact on rural communities. So we're lucky to keep services going. We're lucky if we would get a grant every now and then, maybe 500000 to do a particular project, maybe 50000 to do some streetlights that we had gotten on the initial AARA funding. But it doesn't come easily, and it doesn't come often, and we don't have large staffs to spend time just writing grants. So when the Stellar Community Program came around, and we were able to talk about creating something in our community that would have potentially a regional impact and improve the quality of life in our community. We came up with a plan, and we were asked very pointedly during our site visit by the agencies who were going to provide the funding, if you don't get this, what does it mean? And it was a very simple thing to answer, because if we didn't get the Stellar Grant, we had a wonderful plan, but we had no way to fund it. And so we could probably put edit funds towards it. We could probably put dollars towards it, but by the time we got one project done or applied for another grant, it would be another year gone by and another, and we'd never see the total effect of what potentially we could create. Stellar gives small communities an influx of dollars to put into capital projects that we can't fund on our own, mm-hmm. and not in a timely way for sure. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, I mean, that, your comments make me think about um, infrastructure issues. In Bloomington, we bit a giant bullet uh, over the last several years and have done some really major infrastructure upgrades that were in desperate need of of happening. Um, And through a variety of funding sources, we're able to accomplish those. And I'm wondering how much of a a drag on your economy are infrastructure issues, and is that something that Stellar can help you with? They can. Um, They most certainly can. That's not what we had applied for, and I think it was Jake mentioned maybe there was some frustration not knowing exactly what the stellar grant was all about and what it might fund and i think that was the beauty of what has happened over the years that each of us has unique needs and issues things that we need to really develop and to enhance this vision that 
we've put together for ourselves with our constituents, and it's going to be different for each one. Mm -hmm. We didn't put anything into things like our wastewater system or our stormwater system or our water system, Um, although some changes in our designation right now because of going over 10,000 in population might have changed that a few years ago. Um, But ours was definitely to try and improve the connectors between the university and the community to establish a a core downtown business and a draw for the downtown to do a lot of facade work, to do road reconstruction in some areas to handle problems that we have um, with infrastructure and, again, to make our corridors more comfortable. We've got some parking things that we're working on with IHCDA as well as a second-floor loft program and have done a lot in the area that we've designated with owner-occupied rehabilitation. Is, individual homes. Is the loft, is that the upstairs of downtown mm-hmm. buildings that are yes. often vacant in Indiana? Yes, ma'am. Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned that. What do you have going in there? Hopefully, hopefully, um, we'll have some more creation of apartment spaces in the second floor. We do have a number of buildings that already have market rate apartments on mm-hmm. their second floor, but we have a good number of building owners who haven't had the resources necessarily to fully develop their second floor, and we're working with IHCDA on a program to hopefully enable those kinds of projects to be happening within the next year. Yeah, that's really exciting. You you don't have to look very hard uh, as you drive through smaller communities in Indiana to see those really scary, boarded-up-looking uh, second and sometimes third floors of buildings that you kind of say, gosh, you know, that's viable space, you'd think, and like to see something happen with it. The scary thing, and we have a number of opportunities as mayors in the state of Indiana to talk about issues, and rural communities now are facing an even more difficult crisis with their downtown buildings, and that is because the second and third floors haven't been occupied and there's no resources coming in, that there are people living in the first floors now. So Uh. many small communities have lost um, any sense of a a downtown core and center because it's all turning into um, not probably the best housing for people in need. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. I wasn't even aware that was an issue. All right. We're talking about rural communities today. And uh, if you want to join the conversation, 855-0811 or toll-free, 877-285-9348. You can also join a live chat at org slash noon edition. And we certainly would like to hear from listeners. We know we have a lot of people out there who are living in smaller communities or rural communities. And some of you who are living in larger communities have come from the smaller community, so we'd like to, to get your input on this topic. Yeah, Bloomington sort of took care of that, that people living on the bottom floor of those buildings because a lot of the the uh, growth policies planned and planning uh, and zoning calls for commercial things on right. the ground floor and then residential upstairs. So We've been fortunate that we have the same thing in place, so that hasn't been a problem here for us. Right. It's a little different situation. Well, I'm looking at, uh, at uh, again, the Defining Rural Community Study, and one thing that strikes me is if it goes through the population growth or decline from 2000 to 2010, there are many, many counties that are designated as rural counties that have had a 6% or a 9% or a 4% or a, a, you know, whatever decline in population, but there looks to be about an equal number of communities that have had some growth. Um, and it looks, and just by gazing at this, I guess, it looks like a lot of them are sort of around a more um, urban community. Is that, Frank, is that pretty much what's happened, that the smaller communities that might be a bedroom community for an urban town are growing? That, that's true. I think if you look at the uh, donut counties around Indianapolis, the metro area there is growing very quickly. Um, you have some growth in some of the other urban areas, but in between you have a lot of vacant uh, uh, growth, uh, negative growth uh, going on. People cannot find jobs, um, and they're leaving. And obviously for the younger generation, I think was mentioned in the first interview, is that there's no reason for people to stay. I mean, one thing you could have asked 30 years ago, uh, someone could get a really a good job in a factory and have a middle-class income and send their kids to college. Not so much anymore. That's changed, and, and that's been a drain on the smaller uh, areas. All right, we have a phone call. Let's go to uh, Mike, who's in Bloomington. Mike? Hi. Uh, I have a question that was prompted by Bob's 
comment about county seats. Uh, my wife and I like to drive around the state and visit courthouses in the various county seats. And we've encountered a lot of small towns, sometimes even county seats, down along the Ohio River, over along the Wabash River, where you literally have grass growing in the main street. Uh, these are towns that I suppose used to thrive on river traffic. Um, they, don't, they don't have colleges, they don't have urban areas nearby. Uh, maybe there were market towns for the rural communities, uh, which no longer have enough farmers living in them to come and shop. Uh, it seems like, to me, there's a whole class of towns that are dying or dead. Um, is there any hope for these towns? Can they be revived? Is there a general uh, path toward survival for these towns? Uh, or is there uh, some uh, a, a class that you just have to write off and say that there are some towns that don't have a reason for being anymore, and they should be allowed to just quietly disappear and revert to uh, forest or fields, whatever they were? Jacob? Well, I think a good example of a community like he's describing that has turned around is Mount Vernon. Uh, if you go to Mount Vernon today, uh, you won't recognize it because it is, they have done just a masterful job of uh, revitalizing their downtown. Um, they put together an action plan. They brought together a lot of their um, community organizations, entities, and uh, local businesses. Um, and we partnered with them to develop a mixed-use development that uh, it's right on the main street that overlooks the Ohio River. I mean, the Ohio River is a huge asset for that community, and the view is spectacular. Mm-hmm. And people are lining up to to uh, rent these affordable rental units. There's also market rate units that are also there, and at the ground floor there's commercial. And across the street you have an, a brand-new amphitheater that they put in. Uh, so I do think that there are uh, plenty of communities in our state that are really actually um, have the opportunity to – to move forward, uh, but they got to first identify what that those assets are. And for Mount Vernon, it was the river and the mm-hmm. views mm-hmm. and the opportunity to build on that. And that's what they've done. And I think Greencastle has done the exact same thing, like the mayor said. Their asset is DePaul University. Uh, they're also very close to um, transportation. I mean, you have I-70, you have an international airport. So you identify those areas um, and you build on them. And, but you've got to bring in the right people to have those conversations and to give their ideas of their vision for their community. Mike, I have a question for you because you, you, you sort of sparked this question when you talked about how you like to go around and look at county seat towns and the courthouses. And it's uh, been my experience that a lot of the courthouses themselves have sort of fallen into disrepair. Is that what you're noticing? Um, no, not really. Uh, I would say that, uh, in general, they, they've all been refurbished at some point, uh, you know, in the last 50 years and often in the last 10 years or so. Uh, I would say that's only true of the towns that, I, as I said, you know, had grass growing in the streets, mm-hmm. and there just didn't seem to be any economic activity going on, uh, where the county seat uh, and the county courthouse was the only uh, economic activity in town. And there just so there are some cases where there clearly aren't the funds to even keep up appearances uh, at the courthouse. But there, I'd say those are rather few. I wouldn't say that. I think Indiana has done a good job, and I think there has been state-level concern about the decline of some of the historic and picturesque courthouses, and it, I think they've done, uh, you know, more good things have been done than neglect has been done, so uh, I'm optimistic about uh, the courthouses in general, uh, but I, I'm, I am thinking about some of these really economically uh, depressed small towns that uh, maybe don't have a good river view, don't have a college, they're not a bedroom community, um, and you know you wonder what could possibly be the alternative future for them. And I, I think when you look at a good example for that is Paoli. Uh, Paoli is a community that doesn't really have; it's a bedroom community. 
Um, it doesn't have a four-lane highway that goes through the community that can offer uh, types of manufacturing jobs. But they recognize there was a fire that took place mm-hmm. on the on square. square. Mm-hmm. But if you look, they, they rallied around that. They brought in the Community Action Agency of Hoosier Uplands, Economic Development Corp. Um, and they worked really hard to identify uh, other resources that they could bring uh, to make that work. And then they've rebuilt that corner of the square. Uh, and it's a, again, there's some housing, there's some, there's a commercial piece to that, um, and the the square I think today probably looks better than it has in a yeah. long time uh, as a result of that fire. I mean, yeah. Do they benefit from any uh, gambling proceeds from French Lick or West I think they, they they gambled. I think they received a, a, a little bit. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think the one thing also we need to to look at is this is not the first time Indiana has gone through rough times with communities. We had uh, the canals of the 1830s that came mm-hmm. in. If you talk about infrastructure, we took the wrong gamble there, and we lost uh, our shirts, basically. Right. So we went, we've had some changes over time. Uh, railroads have come to towns, have left towns. So we've actually been able to bounce back before. Um, they're just going to have to reinvent themselves a little bit. But, yeah. it, but I, I understand what Mike's saying, though. It does seem to be there's kind of a natural ebb and flow, and at some point, you know, I, I think – the point that Mike makes is, you know, maybe there won't be enough to go, uh, enough um, motivation to um, bring back all of these small communities. I think I think small communities really have to identify, again, I keep saying, going back to identify those assets, because when I, I grew up in Cloverdale, and, you know, when after uh, I got older and I got into more of this public planning and understanding, you know, these walkable communities, well, Cloverdale... Mm-hmm. If you if you're if you're in town, you ha- you can walk to the dentist, you can walk to the grocery store. If you're not walking, you're you're not in town uh, because everything is right there. And also, oftentimes, that's what our urban communities are looking for: is that walkable community where everything is so close. Our small towns have that. Uh, I just don't know if sometimes uh, our communities understand that they actually have all of those opportunities there. Um, and infrastructure that they're and they're taking advantage of that. So, uh, Mayor Sue Murray's Green Castle was a big city for you. It was, yes, and a rival, and we and we did beat him in basketball this year. <laughs> <laughs> All right, our phone numbers again are eight five five zero eight one one in Bloomington eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight, and you can also join the live chat at wfiu dot org slash noon edition. We are talking about. Uh, rural communities, and as Mike asked, is there hope for these dying towns? Uh, can can these rural communities attract people there uh, for whatever reason? So I, I have a couple of uh, other major sort of um, factors, I guess, I want to toss out when it comes to small towns. One is the whole retail industry. You know, in the uh, back when I was growing up in a small town, my family had a department store on the, the square in a county seat and basically was run out of business by the malls. And that was even before Walmart and some of the superstores. Um, so that seems to be one big change. And then the other topic I want to just toss out and get reactions from all of you about you know, these effects is technology and whether, you know, Perhaps technology, if we bring broadband into all these rural communities, if they're going to – if those – that factor is going to help to restore them. So first, let's talk about the sort of the retail, the shopping issue and, and what's that – what that's done for smaller communities. Frank? Well, I think the one thing on this is that we've uh, gone away from the downtown shopping. I just recently watched uh, on the uh, – uh, Facebook, I guess, about my hometown and some of the things that happened in the 1940s, 1950s. You see the downtown stores. Uh, we've gone away from that, and not only have we gone away from that to the shopping centers, but we're now driving 30 or 40 miles to go to regional plant or regional shopping centers. So the money is leaving town. It's not staying in these small rural communities anymore. Mm-hmm. Or it's going via the internet. Even farther. And, Until recently, they didn't have to pay tax on that right. either. So. <laughs> and Mayor Murray, how how's that affected Greencastle? Well, I think it's the same as it has everyone else. Mm-hmm. We used to have a downtown that had a J.C. Penney's, a mm-hmm. department store, two shoe stores, two men's stores, and that was back in the early 1980s. What happened to Greencastle in that interim is that IBM, who was the largest employer, closed their first facility in 1987. So a good part of our white-collar workforce moved away, and we weren't able to sustain those businesses any longer. And we have fought for the subsequent 25, almost 30 years to figure out what do you bring to the downtown. I 
guess I have two reactions. Number one, we're spending a lot of time trying to revitalize our downtown with facade work, with second floor lofts, making it a community that people will want to be in and will want to frequent. And one of the things we were able to do at the beginning of the Stellar Grant and working again with the university was have them bring their bookstore downtown, mm-hmm. which for anyone who's coming to the university, either as a prospective student or uh, with an athletic team or an alum, whatever, that's about 60,000 people a year who come and just want to paw paraphernalia. So mm-hmm. they make their way to our downtown, and we're hoping that that has a dramatic effect on what other kinds of opportunities for more of a, I think, a boutique environment, a, um, art environment that will attract people that you can't get on the Internet, and that you can't get in a mall. I think the other thing that happened when the bookstore came down is that there was investment in a 75-foot, 75-seat Starbucks. And by all indications, our demographics could never support that. <laughs> but they far exceeded their first-year expectations in nine months after opening, and it hasn't changed. So we've seen that as a sign that if you can provide something that people are interested in and you can have a critical mass who even come to look around, then your chances of being able to attract and sustain businesses go up. We have a young man who just opened a market, and he remembered days of old when he was growing up, a market in this community here that provided deli sandwiches and fresh cuts of meat and locally grown items. And after two years of planning, he's opened that up, and he far exceeds what was here before, and it's an extremely popular place. As a matter of fact, you get to the end of the workday and you stand in line to try and get something to take home for dinner. Wow. So uh, it's kind of some invisible demand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that uh, that uh, Mayor Murray makes. And, you know, with the, the, the uh, fresh local food movement, it seems like a lot of the smaller communities would be in a good place to take advantage of that. Uh, I mentioned technology, and I want to go to our next caller because Stephanie has, I think, some comments on what technology can mean for these small towns. Right, Stephanie? Yeah. Um, yeah, Stephanie? I felt yeah. that if the – can you hear me? Yeah, go right ahead. Okay. I felt that if the, if the state would um, partner and fund some digital infrastructure, that would be a huge boost because I think there are a lot of people in our cities who would really rather go back home or just switch and live in a smaller community, but they have to earn a living. And I, you know, I'm from Olytic, which mm-hmm. <laughs> is a real small town. And um, my other idea of, or thought that piggybacks on that is I think rural counties are really in a good place to do a creative in-run around what I think is our current over-education push Um not all jobs need a college degree, That's a four year college degree, and rural counties know this firsthand. And if they, you know, if they had a digital infrastructure to work from, there would be a way to bring a lot of small business activity there because there'd be a way to educate for those kinds of jobs and interests, which also then leads to rural counties being able to make themselves into cultural magnets, whatever the local mix is, whether it's book binding or whether it's tourism with the views or whatever. I think they just have a lot to bring to the table. Yeah, the Mm -hmm. lieutenant governor is putting together a working group for that last mile of broadband uh, because it is an issue uh, in our communities, uh, especially on the ag side. The, the, on the ag side, they're heavily dependent, and they need the broadband because mm-hmm. they need that information, uh, you know, every minute. They need to know what those corn prices are. And so uh, it is important that we uh, provide broadband to all parts of our state and that you have access to it because, the, you know, currently the generation, they it's like electricity. If you don't have electricity, why would we move there? Well, if you don't have broadband, why would we move there? Uh, so. We do have to be able to ensure that we can figure out a way that broadband uh, is in all of our uh, 
rural communities. Mm-hmm. And that, right. that's, that's a local story also because uh, when Becky Skillman was the lieutenant governor, she made a major announcement at Smithville Telephone mm-hmm. over in Ellettsville mm-hmm. about having funds to go ahead and try to expand as much as possible in areas that are not being served by broadband. So mm-hmm. that's a local story here with Smithville and, and Ellettsville. Mm-hmm. Okay, we've I, got, oh, go, go ahead. I, I just wanted to uh-huh. say we were very fortunate in 2004 that oh, so. a small company called now called Synergy, and it's Synergy Metronet Incorporated, got a USDA grant, and they made Greencastle their pilot project. And so we've had broadband to the home and to our businesses since 2004. As part of Stellar, I think Greencastle Mayor, they had the uh, mm-hmm. Wi-Fi for the downtown. For the that downtown. Was, right. That was part that of the, the Wi-Fi Stellar. piece that they had. Mm-hmm. All right. That's uh, Mayor Sue Murray from Greencastle again. Uh, we have about two minutes to go. Valerie is on the phone. Valerie, um, we have two minutes. Yeah, I'll keep it short. Um, I grew up in Bloomington and moved to Owen County in 1977 because, you know, Bloomington was changing. When I was a kid, you know, there was a... A candy store down the street on First Street, I think First and Grant, where we used to go, and there was the IGA on Second Street, you know, we used to walk to the grocery. There was the Betty Jean shop on the square where, you know, we used to go buy maple sugar candy. And, and you know, that was how Bloomington was, and it just changed into, you know, the College Mall and all that stuff. But anyway, yeah, one thing that is probably frustrating people is, you know, well, what can I do as an individual and da-da-da. I'll tell you one thing I make a point of doing in Owen County and Spencer is to shop at the family-owned businesses, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and, and tell them why you're, I mean, these people are so grateful for your business. But, you know, if people don't shop there, they're not going to be there. And so, yeah, you might pay a few more dollars. Like there's a gas station in Spencer, Country Mark, that actually gets all of their gas from the oil pumped in southwestern Indiana and southeastern Illinois, and mm-hmm. it's refined, right? And, you know, so it's a little bit more expensive. So what? You know, we're not sending the money to the Middle East. And just make a point of finding out who the family-owned businesses are and uh, go there. All right. Great point, okay, great point, Valerie. We're going to have to end the show on that okay. point. Thank you, Valerie. Really appreciate it. I want to thank our guest today, Jacob Seip. Carmen Lethig, Frank Nierwicki, and Sue Murray for Mary Catherine Carmichael, producer Claire McInerney, and engineer Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and The Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. And from IU School of Public Health Bloomington, Addressing public health needs by preventing disease, promoting health, and improving quality of life across the state and around the world through research, teaching, and community engagement. Offering undergraduate and advanced degrees. publichealth.indiana.edu.